0: We are in the city of Ephesus again this week, and if you were with us last week, we focused on people, namely three characters. Can anyone remember A-P-A? Priscilla? Aquila? And Apollos, yay, the congregation that listens, hallelujah, hallelujah. Three great characters, a part of the early church where Paul was spending probably up to three years of life in ministry. He was preaching, he was teaching, he was arguing in the local synagogue or marketplace, encouraging this fledgling group of Christians. This week, we meander through the sprawling streets, the noisy, chariot-clacking streets, the statue-filled, congested streets of Ephesians, and we're pondering place. First off, the temple. I grew up in southern Alberta and uh, grew up with a lot of Mormon influence, and if you know southern Alberta, you will know that there is a place called Temple City. Anyone heard of Temple City? Yes, 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 yeah? Yeah. Cardston, Alberta. It's the only town in Canada that intersects both the Cowboy Trail and Canada's historic Mormon Trail. Fun fact, right? This small town with its massive Mormon temple attracts people from all over the country. It's a spectacular sight, and uh, for those live streaming or those who want to watch this later, Evan's going to post a few pictures of the Mormon temple. It's in the middle of the prairies, you pull into Carston, and boom, there's this huge, massive temple at the heart of this little town. So we're talking about Ephesus, though, and Ephesus was, was also a, a temple city. And the temple at the time of Paul and his people being there is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, its footprint is one and a half times the size of a football field. It's got what some describe as a forest of columns, 127 columns 20 meters high which I imagine would reach to the the very peak of our uh, ceiling line here, 2 meters thick. The whole building made of marble. It's the largest religious temple of its time and it has prestige. And power. And it functions in lots of ways in this big city of Ephesus. It's um, the place for civic decrees to be uh, cried out. It's um, got so much money, it's it's a bank economy system of its own. It provides asylum for fugitives. Uh, the religious center of Ephesus is the temple. And if there's going to be a parade or a religious procession, it starts at the temple it flows through the city, and it ends at the temple. And at the center of this glorious temple is the statue of Artemis, uh, known to be five meters high, and many believe that it had landed in the middle of the temple courts straight from the heavens above. So it's a, a spectacular statue to behold, and people come from all over the country. They Offer gifts and sacrifices to Artemis so that she might make their lives successful and even procreative. Because Artemis is known as the giver of life, the giver of fortune, and people do whatever it takes to appease and find favor with this goddess. So, of course, there's lots of money to be made around the temple and the temple courts. Uh, there's businesses to be had, there's temple swag, right? Maybe they had the I Heart Artemis t-shirts that they would sell in the local courts. Um, Money handlers, currency exchangers, uh, trying to get a quick profit, selling animals or selling trinkets, whatever it might be to help the common people offer sacrifices to Artemis. Whatever would increase their chances of winning Artemis' favor. But... This thriving business of Artemis is disrupted, shall we say, or causing an annoyance in the usual operations. And we read in today's story that no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. So can you imagine the president of the Silversmith Union, local number 666, a man named Demetrius, starts an uprising with his own fellow artisans and workers. He's like, our profits are getting pummeled. Our production, hamstring, Paul, and these followers of this new, strange way bring danger. They claim that our products are of ill repute. Can you believe it? And not only do they insult us, In the hard work of our trade, they insult our beloved Artemis. And Paul has even been known to have the nerve to defy her majesty, to question her purity and her protection. And it's not just our paychecks that are at stake. It's the reputation of our beloved Artemis who I might remind you brings cash to our pocketbooks, I mean, brings worshipers to our fine city, and glory to our great and holy goddess who gives us what we want when we offer her the right sacrifices. And the chant begins, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis Come on, let, let, let's create the drama here. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And you imagine the crowd and kind of that mob mentality that takes over. Maybe you've been at a, a hockey game or a, a football game where, you know, the crowd starts chanting and then people join them. It doesn't work for us to get wins in this city, apparently, but for Artemis at this time, it was great. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so then they start pouring into the local arena, probably 20,000 of them. And they drag Paul and his companions, a couple of them named for us, Gaius and Aristarchus. They're pushed onto the arena stage. Are they going to punish and crush Paul's friends? Are they going to send a message to these followers of the way that their lowbrow brand of religion is not welcome here? Maybe Paul should get involved. He's a great orator. Let's get him to speak to this noisy, uh, raucous crowd and set the record straight. Or not. We read that cooler, wiser heads prevail And Paul flees the angry mob. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And who would have imagined that the town clerk wins the day, preventing this mob to turn into a dangerous riot? He cries out, citizens of Ephesians, everyone knows that Artemis is great. We're the city where her statue came from the heavens and is in our temple courts. Stop your rioting. These followers of the way are harmless. And if the silversmith union needs to have a meeting, get them to contact my schedulers. And he simply says, be dismissed. What a strange and maybe a bit surprising end to this story, which might leave us to ponder, what do we do with a story like this, Lord? Are we supposed to be like the town clerk, just calming down riots, maybe? Or are we supposed to be like Paul, who in an unusual way, this story, flees. He's usually the one who's pressing into the crowd, but he simply flees the crowd. He doesn't enter the fray. He doesn't get involved with the frenzy. That's interesting, too. But I'd like to suggest that perhaps the way that we live out of the story today is to say that in Temple City, let's not be seduced by the temple. Let's not be seduced by the grandeur, the architecture, the lure of fortune and fame, prestige, power, riches. In Temple City, be a people. And Paul might even say, be a temple. Because Paul would write about it in his letter to the Ephesians, probably five to seven years later. And I imagine he was learning lessons in that moment amongst that riotous crowd that he would then write about when he wrote to the Ephesians. I reread the letter to Ephesians this week, and if you have your pew Bibles still open, you can open up to chapter 2 of Ephesians. And I tried to read it like a temple city citizen, and it brought some great new meanings for me. In chapter 2, we read Paul, and he writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, And also members of the household of God. You are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Aha! in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place of God. So it's not about marble columns or stunning architectural design, quick profits, lucky charms, because everything else will crumble and be brought to ruin. And if you go to Ephesus today, it is um, on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And if you go and try to find the site of this great temple, there's one column left. And again, I, uh, Evan's going to post a picture of that. You can find it online. Out of 127 columns, there's one left in a lonely, barren, swampy field. So we should take encouragement to believe that Our cornerstone isn't in modern-day Ephesus. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And in Jesus, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's us. We are being built together. Even this day, as we worship, as we encourage, as we pray, as we cheer each other on, we are being built together a dwelling place for God. I hope that encourages our hearts today. We become a dwelling place for God. And I didn't feel like we needed to come up with more community-building words because the ones from last week's story of Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila were good ones to carry on into this week. As we live out this life, it's about mentoring. It's about strengthening It's about listening and learning with humility. It's about nurturing. And last week, we talked about Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, and together in Temple City, they were being built into the dwelling place of God. Eugene Peterson, the Christian pastor and uh, contemplative writer, when he reflects on Ephesians and the temple people, He he puts it this way, the local, immediate, participatory aspects of church are extended in Ephesians by describing us as the building materials used to construct church. Men, women, and children are just as material as boards and bricks. Jesus is the cornerstone and we are whatever else makes up the structure. Rafters and joists, flooring and roofing, doors and window frames. When we consider church, we must not be more spiritual than God. Church is a place and a building, but church is also people and relationships. And I think Our songs and our prayers, and even what Dawn was sharing with the kids today people and relationships. We become the building materials of God. So, again, mentoring, listening with humility, strengthening, nurturing, God gathering us together, building this dwelling place a holy temple where we're set apart but we're also invited to be together. God making God's self known to us with names and words. From a few weeks ago, when Jeremy was preaching, he talked about the importance of names and words. He said words and names matter. And even with what Ken was talking about earlier, right at the beginning of service, What does it mean for us to build a life together? An essential part of it is words and names. You, me, Josie, Jack, Jesse, Jeremy. I'm using all these J names because then I can end with Jesus. (laughs) You and me, rafters, joists, doors, window frames. You and me, a dwelling place for God. Strengthening, nurturing, even holding each other up. I love that image of the dwelling place. If we are door frames and joists and roof beams and windows and walls, then we are holding each other up. And so as I've been doing over the past several weeks, I want you to pause and look around you, whether you're here in the sanctuary, whether you're here on live stream and you can look around your room or look around the horizon of your life. Who are those doors and window frames, those joists, those boards? Maybe they're near you. Maybe you'll turn to them even now and go, Thanks, board. Thanks, window frame. Thanks for holding me up in this place, in this season. Maybe you'll hang another leaf on the tree because you've got a name of a person who holds you up, who helps build us into the dwelling place of God. Let us be grateful for each other, for we are temple people.